all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 167 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Martina. Navratilova episode of the SLS cast. And that is simply because it turns out that in tennis, with an all-time record for men or women, Miss Martina Navratilova has 167 tennis titles. So, with that wonderful little bit of Martina Navratilova, tennis knowledge. I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California. Well, actually, I don't think it's too sunny because no. we had a weather situation. Yes, uh, is our is our resident Sony employee Tim, and we are feeling El Nino today. The boy, the boy has come and sprinkled his wet. Uh, hang on, let me backtrack. Uh, that I don't think could have ended in not in a creepy, weird way. Uh, yeah, I mean, people are saying this is El Nino, but it's not. It's a spritz. It's a spritz that's been that's been happening for the past day, uh, and yet people drive incredibly slow. It's like it, it's the type, Matt. It's, it's like it's the type of traffic you would expect in a Luby's parking lot. Ooh. A Luby's, you know, I gotta be honest with you, um, I went to a Luby's when I was about 14 or 15, and I went there because I had to, <laughs> not because I wanted to. Well, isn't that usually the case when you're a child? Like, no, I, I've never met a teenager or preteen who said, you know what, mom, dad, or girlfriend, I think we ought to go to Luby's tonight. It's even worse when you go to Luby's on a Friday night. You're missing out on a lot. You're missing out on anything else that is happening across the threshold of the of the Luby's door. I, I guess my, uh, I mean, the, I, I mean, well, the moral of this story, I, I guess, is what I really wanted to try and get at is that um, I simply have not been to a Luby's since then, so I'm not sure what it looks like in a Luby's parking lot anymore. Well, what happened during during your Luby's visit that affected you so much to where you never came back? Did you have like a bad Luan plate, or did you get <laughs> it, honestly? It's, it 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 just really and truly uh, wasn't very good. Um, I was, really wasn't impressed with this cafeteria crap food. So, well, two things. One. <laughs> I love how you phrased that you were not impressed, as if you were a little, a younger Anthony Bourdain going into Luby's and expecting a fine, which actually, to be fair, Luby's isn't as inexpensive as one would think. But two, Luby's is the only establishment that can fashionably pull off the rolling chairs that you sit in. Ooh. 
Rolling chairs. Even. I know. It's I don't fancy. even remember the rolling chairs. Oh, there. Uh, I think that's like a staple at all Lubies. You go there for the rolling chairs. Sizzler? Nay, Sizzler is too modern for the rolling chairs. But you go to Lubies? An abundance of rolling chairs. That is where the rolling chairs go and graze. For ass is at Lubies. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> It's 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 good to know that definitely indeed. So if you need to graze for ass, you go to the lubies. Matt, your 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 back broke last week, and it was it was making one of your testicles sore. I I think I read that that you, you that what yes. you publicly wrote, put out there yes. online. Yes, I, I I asked the question: Have you ever hurt your back so badly that you? literally like has you have your yeah the question i think was along the lines of have you ever hurt your back so badly that it made one of your testicles sore and i can now answer that question yes i was attempting to clean a fork i forked (laughs) myself tim i forked myself good did you land on the fork no no i literally i i was simply leaning over i had i had leaned over the counter uh, over the sink for a while doing dishes and stuff like that and instead of uh realizing that my back was starting to tighten up i just continued i just carried on and was going about my lovely day and then um went and had my daughter hand me yet one last fork i was i thought we were all done i have my daughter hand me the one last fork and then she planned it. I, yeah, but it was a silver fork. It was pure silver, so it couldn't go in the dishwasher. And that is why um, I needed to actually wash the stupid thing uh, by hand. So I washed the stupid thing by hand. And then um, I'm leaning over the sink, and I'm just really you know, using my thumbnail to scritch off this last little piece of dry food that's on there and i'm successful I what, what kind of dry it. food was it like i don't even remember pasta sauce just something like that yeah maybe a little spaghetti or something i don't know so i'm successful in my quest i then go ahead and uh toss the fork into the sink and into the in my two compartment sink i put it into the compartment with the clean dishes and then i go to stand up and my back went completely out pulled all the muscles in my lower back um and was thought i was going to die literally just solid constant pain um couldn't move <laughs> barely made it into bed where i stayed for a day and a half and i've slowly been recuperating i can move around and do what i need to do but i have definitely discovered the value of good posture and quality seating, all that fun stuff. It's, it's you know. And also, another good reason to actually start really losing some weight because being fat doesn't help. So, yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at. I forked myself on Thursday night, Tim. Well, I think that was the time that your family, your kids, and your wife could have proven themselves to you how dedicated they are to 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 father and wash you with a rag with a damp cloth 
every couple hours. Oh, Make sure Christ. you're not. I got two. I got two glasses of water. Two, two, Tim. I got two glasses of water <laughs> and two, uh, uh, two Aleve out of the whole fucking thing. Everything else, I had to take care of myself. Really? So yeah, they didn't give yes, you like really. like a little bucket of trail mix or no, raisins nothing. or anything. I was com- completely on my own. And so. I bet they were in the living room. They had the TV turned up really loud on you know one of their oh well that's little okay kid programs. Because, you know, it's just now quid pro quo, right? Turnabout is fair play. So when the uh, so the next time that you know my wife has a migraine or you know the shoulders are just killing her, uh, I will get her a glass of water and a pill. You know, and if that doesn't do it, well, tough shit. Well, you have the flu? Ah, that'll pass in a couple days. That's right. Go knock. Yay. Bed's all yours. So Let me go get you some frothy chocolate milk. You don't need water. (laughs) All right. Well, then, uh, should we do some uh, new, or not news, uh, mail real quick? Check the old email inbox. Check the old email box. All right. So, uh, we have uh, at the show... At SLScast.com. It turns out that we have a new Twitter follower. Yes, and you can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. Our new Twitter follower is Revelstoke Jim. Jim Browning at Revelstoke Jim. And you can all, you can check out his wonderful Canadian content at RevelstokeJim.com. Uh, he says to explain myself, I'd have to say I am a writer, broadcaster, builder, artist. In a small Canadian town, I stand out as the guy that people just don't understand. And he, of course, is part of our incestuous uh, love group. I don't know. It sounds like spam to me. I think if you ever come across uh, Revelstoke Jim, just block him. Just block him. It's fake. It's spam. It's spam. <laughs> what I don't understand, and that's the thing, is what I don't understand is what... What the fuck? Why did it take him three years to fucking follow us? You know? I mean, it's like, good God, man. Or even five months. I think we we all had a group discussion like five months ago. (laughs) So, at any rate, yes, welcome to the fold, sir, officially as a follower on Twitter. Um, But be sure to check him out. He's got some really cool storytelling stuff that he does on his show. And Jesus Christ, he's way more professional sounding than we are. So you've got that going for you as well. Um, All right. So that is what we have in the old mailbag, as it were. So now it's on to the news, is it not, sir? Yes, sir. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. And first up from me, I am going to talk about some movies that are coming out. Uh, Let's see here. Or not movies that are coming out. I apologize. Let me rephrase that. I am going to be talking about movies in production and a movie being re-released. According to Marvel.com, let's see here. And this is by way of doesn't say looks like guardians of the galaxy uh two is now officially in production and they have gotten that going on they've got uh, all the original cast and of course new people like uh kurt russell are going to be here now chris sullivan 
excellent, uh, excellent people in that vein. Also in production now officially as uh, the filming of Star Wars Episode Eight, that uh, that news came to us from Deadline dot com by way of Jeremy Gerard. So there you go. Oh, of course, we've got uh, Benicio del Toro and Laura Dern for Star Wars Episode Eight, and the filming has kicked off there. Uh, let's see how. Um, and then in terms of movie releases, we have from E. W.com. Yes, Entertainment Weekly by way of Oliver Gattel. The Maltese Falcon is returning to theaters for 75th anniversary. You heard that right, folks. Maltese Falcon is celebrating its diamond anniversary anniversary with a trip to the movies. Uh, the 1941 film noir classic starring Humphrey Bogart as a private eye who gets mixed up in the hunt for a jewel-encrusted statuette is returning to theaters nationwide Sunday, February 21st, and Wednesday, February 24th, via Fathom Events. Uh, screenings will take place at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time with specially produced commentary from Turner Classic Movies host Ben Mankiewicz. Um, so if you have never seen this before, please, please, please take the opportunity to go and see it. It's fantastic, and it's going to be in a full cinema uh, experience. So that's that in and of itself should make it worth it, even if you have seen it. And if you haven't, well, man, what a way to be introduced to it. So, uh, excellent. Yes, please check those out. Tim, anything to add, comment, question, concern, anything regarding Maltese Falcon uh, appearing for a couple of days? The production of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 officially kicking off and or Star Wars 8 officially beginning filming? Yeah, isn't, uh, Kurt Russell, he's playing uh, What's-His-Name's dad, right? I believe so, yes. I think that'd be cool. I, like, I mean, I, I don't think I could ever get tired of Kurt Russell, you know? No, I, I don't think so. I, I truly don't think so either. Uh, he's just way, way, way too cool for me. And it's just fun to always watch him. Uh, same with Dennis Quaid. I really always like, you know, I don't care how good or bad the movie looks. As soon as I hear that Kurt Russell's in it or Dennis Quaid's in it, they're just so damn eternally cool for me and rugged, that, you know, that I that I must go see what, what's, what's happening. Poor Dennis Quaid. He will never be able to live up to his brother's grandeur. <laughs> Poor man. <laughs> in, in, indeed. He will never be indeed. quite the legend as Danny Quaid, or as Randy Quaid certainly That's is. That's right. Uh, first up for me via DangerousMinds.net, an article here that was posted in January, the terrifying rejected Exorcist soundtrack, the director literally threw out a window, and it says this, William Friedkin's 1973 masterpiece, The Exorcist, was a landmark in horror cinema, a cultural phenomenon, and, if adjusting for inflation, the ninth highest grossing film of all time. The film makes minimal use of music, a stylistic choice which gives the film an air of stark realism despite the supernatural events depicted on screen. Of the minimal music used in the film, most famous is Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, which went on to become a smash so huge that it essentially birthed the Virgin Empire. Before Friedkin settled on Oldfield's Prague masterpiece, he had originally commissioned a score from Lalo Schifrin, 
who had famously done soundtrack work for Cool Hand Luke, Dirty Harry, and the instantly recognizable Mission Impossible TV show theme. Schifrin's atonal exorcist score was very much in the vein of Christoph Penderecki, whose cello concerto number one of Polymorphia was used in the film's final edit, with the addition of Bernard Hermanesque Fright Stabs. Those are in quotes, Fright Stabs. This score was used in an advanced trailer, which some have called the Band Trailer. As the stories go, this trailer literally made audiences sick when it was shown. It's unclear if the sounds and images were simply upsetting, or if the flashing images actually caused seizures in some viewers. Schifrin, speaking to Score Magazine, revealed some of the history of his work and Freakin's reaction. He said this, The truth is that it was one of the most unpleasant experiences of my life. But I have recently read that in order to triumph in your life, you may previously have some fails. What happened is that the director, William Freakin, hired me to write the music for the trailer. Six minutes were recorded for the Warner's edition of the trailer. The people who saw the trailer reacted against the film because the scenes were heavy and frightening, so most of them went to the toilet to vomit. The trailer was terrific, but the mix of those frightening scenes and my music, which was also a very difficult and heavy score, scared the audiences away. So the Warner Brothers executives said freaking to tell me that I must write less dramatic and softer score. I could easily and perfectly do what they wanted because it was way too simple in relevance to what I had previously written, but Freakin' didn't tell me what they said. I'm sure he did it deliberately. In past, we had an incident caused by other reasons, and I think he wanted vengeance. So Matt, are you familiar with this original trailer of The Exorcist? I was, I always heard about it, but I never actually watched it until a month or so ago, at night, on my TV... And it was very creepy and unsettling and quite startling if you're not expecting what you were about to see. It's very much kind of reminiscent of the psycho, you know, the stabbing sounds of the violins and these flashes of these ghostly faces. Have you seen that before? No, no, I have not. It sounds interesting, though. Uh, I I guess maybe at some point I will have to go and take a whistle as it were. All right. From flickeringmyth.com by way of, uh, let's see here, Luke Owen. Sonic the Hedgehog is getting his first movie in 2018. Yes. Having rushed onto video game screens back in 1991, people finally thought, hey, let's fucking make a movie. (laughs) It's only 27 years later. (laughs) Um... Yes, Sonic the Hedgehog's first foray into cinema territory will happen in 2018. Uh, Let's see here. Sega president and CEO Hajime Satomi says this, quote, Sega Sammy Group is currently planning with Sony Pictures to create a live-action and animation hybrid Sonic the Hedgehog movie scheduled for release in 2018. Like with this CG animation production, we would like to expand our business into other entertainment areas beyond what we are currently involved. End quotes there. Um, This just sounds like a really, really, really bad idea. Uh, What do you think, Tim? Agree? Disagree? 
Um, yes. I do definitely disagree. I, I just don't understand, you, you, like... You disagree, so you think it's a good oh, no, idea. no, 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 I, I agree with your disagree. That that you disagree with them agreeing to make the movie. <laughs> okay, all right. So it is definitely a bad I idea. Just, I just don't understand awesome. how they're going to do live-action CGI with Sonic the Hedgehog. I have no idea. I mean, like, with Sony did the Smurfs and kind of screwed up the Smurfs franchise, why have CGI Smurfs reacting and interacting with real humans and not just have it all in a CGI world to where you can manipulate what the people are watching so that it all is one kind of cohesive product? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just think it might be like Sonic 06 or something. I have no idea. There was a there was a creepy love story with with Sonic and like an actual humanoid being. It was kind of weird. So <laughs> maybe they're trying to do that again. I don't know. Anyway, what do you got there, sir? All right, a couple passings to report on here from the Hollywood Reporter. Polish director Andrzej Zulowski dies at seventy five, and I do apologize for butchering his name. How you spell it? A-N-D-R-Z-E-J, so Andrzej Zulowski, Z-U-L-A-W-S-K-I, Polish director. Um, The controversial, but the article says that the controversial Helmer, who had a son with French actress Sophia Merceau, died after long struggle with cancer. Polish director Andrzej Zulowski, who spent much of his career working in France after falling afoul with communist authorities at home, has died. He was 75. The director died after a long struggle with cancer, according to the Polish Filmmakers Association. Known for his highly artistic, controversial, and often very violent films, Zulowski was noted for rediscovering actresses including Romy Schneider, Isabel Adjani, and Sophie Marceau who gave some of their best performances in his films. The Polish Film Institute told The Hollywood Reporter that, unfortunately, it could confirm the news of the Helmer's death. Zawalski's son, uh, Xauri, X-A-W-E-R-Y, also a film director, noted how seriously ill his father was in a Facebook post last Tuesday, writing he was, quote, terminally ill with cancer and undergoing intensive therapy in hospital in Poland, end quote, news agency AFP reported. Uh, Zolowski made his first two films in his native Poland, his 1971 debut, The Third Part of the Night, and The Devil the following year, but left for France after authorities banned the latter pick. His latter films include Possession from 81 and Fidelity from 2000. Incidentally, before Zawalski's death, Kino Lorber said Tuesday that it had acquired all North American rights to Cosmos, with its U.S. premiere set as part of the film comment Select series, organized by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, which opened Wednesday in New York. The event also includes a feature sidebar, Quote, spotlight on Andrzej Zwalski, end quote, with screenings of The Devil on the Silver Globe and the third part of The Night. Zwalski is survived by three children, including a son with Marsu, from whom he separated in 2001. R.I.P. Polish director A.Z. And then the second passing here is quite, I mean, rather ridiculous, if not still sad. 
via CNN.com, Japanese actor killed by prop samurai sword. This is written by Juliet Perry. And this article says that a Japanese play rehearsal took a tragic turn Monday when an actor was stabbed in the stomach with a samurai sword. Daigo Kashino, who was 33 years old, was rushed to the hospital and later died. The actor was in a rehearsal session at a studio in Kodo, Tokyo, when he was pierced in the abdomen with a sword-like object during an action scene, a police representative told CNN. The other actors reportedly heard him groan and turned to discover him hunched over, but no one saw what happened. Police are now investigating whether his death was an accident or a criminal act. It marks the second time in recent weeks that a performer has died during a production. Earlier this month, Italian actor Raphael Schumacher was declared clinically dead after he was choked in a stage-hanging scene that went wrong. And then the article goes on to talk more about swords on stage, in short, sword-swinging Jedagaiki, Jedagaiki? J-I-D-A-I-G-E-K-I dramas are an integral part of the Japanese culture on stage and in television and film. Literally translated as period dramas, they portray the daily lives of samurai, farmers, ninjas, merchants, and craftsmen during Japan's Edo period between 1603 and 1868. Once a national pastime, the genre has now become a bit more niche, one of the biggest studios in the field, Toei had recently teamed up with Google Japan to boast the art form's dwindling popularity among the younger generation, and so on from there. Yes, I know, we are a movie podcast, but an actor, even a stage actor killed by a samurai prop sword, is worth noting. Matt, back to you. To tie in to um, the sad news of deaths... I have two deaths to bring to the attention of our listener. Let's see here. Uh, from comicbook.com by way of Jamie Lovett. Big Hero 6 screenwriter Daniel Gerson dies at 49. Uh, this actually happened just about two weeks ago. But uh, just due to the length of the show and with all the movies and stuff, I hadn't had a chance to talk about it yet. Um Daniel Gerson, who was the co-writer of Disney and Marvel's Big Hero 6 and a contributor to a lot of Pixar films, died um, at the age of 49 from brain cancer, I believe. Yes, from brain cancer. Uh, it turns out that his that Gerson and his writing partner, Robert L. Baird, uh, they co-wrote Monsters, Inc., uh, Monsters University. They also have a credit for Cars 3, which is upcoming. They also did stuff for Disney, like Chicken Little and uh, Meet the Robinsons, back to Pixar. They also did Cars Up and Inside Out. Um, and then they even did Open Season, which I think was DreamWorks or Sony Animation or something like that. So uh, this guy actually did a lot of stuff that's pretty influential in the in the field of animation. So I just wanted to make sure to put that out there. Um, that's, that is pretty sad. Uh, finally on the, uh, obituary front from the guardian.com by way of Thomas Batten, uh, George Gaines of police Academy fame and also punky Brewster for those of my age who remember such a thing. Um, 
he passed away. He actually passed away on Monday at age 98. Uh, let's see here. He was best known for his film and television work in the 80s. Of course, there we go, as an adoptive father on Punky Brewster, doddering police com- commandant Eric Lassard in seven police academy films, and, of course, the seasoned soap opera star Besotted with Dustin Hoffman's alter ego in 1984's Tootsie. Um, the article is actually very good, very touching, goes into a little bit more of his background and, of course, uh, how how much his work has actually influenced cinema in various ways and wonderful characters that he played. So please make sure to go and check that one out. Again, that was Guardian.com's article uh, by Thomas Batten. And those are my two deals on the passings. So back to you again, Tim. Bouncing back and forth like a ping pong match. <laughs> ping pong. All right, well, I will go ahead and close out my news with my last two bits of news. First up, via the rap.com, Academy Updates, Oscar Statue Design hires new manufacturer after 32 years. This is written by Matt Donnelly, and believe it or not, it is in the awards section of the rap, considering this is probably the most famous award in awards. Paulich Talix replaces R.S. Owens and Company, which had produced the gold trophy since 1983. The Oscar statuette is getting a minor makeover and a brand new company to produce the coveted gold prizes ahead of the 88th Annual Academy Awards. New York-based Paulich Talix Fine Art Foundry landed the big account Academy President Cheryl Boone Isaacs announced Tuesday, The group replaces R.S. Owens and Company, who has been on the Academy payroll since 1983. Quote, With the help of some 21st century technology, we're able to honor the Oscars' proud beginnings, end quote, said Boone Isaacs. Quote, The new statuette exemplifies impeccable craftsmanship and the enduring nature of art, end quote. Aesthetically, the trophy will resemble the statue of the 1920s, which was molded on sketches by MGM artist Cedric Gibbons and designed by George Stanley. Weighing 8.5 pounds, the statue requires meticulous execution that rival what it takes to produce one of the epics nominated for Best Picture. According to the Academy, each wax statuette is coated in a ceramic shell that is cured and fired at 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit, melting the wax away and leaving an empty Oscar-shaped form. The statuettes are then cast in liquid bronze at more than 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, cooled and sanded to a mere polish finish. The figure portion of each Oscar is electroplated with a permanent layer of reflective 24-karat gold by Epner Technology, a renowned high-tech specification electroplating company in Brooklyn. The statuette's bronze base receives a smooth black patina, which is hand-buffed to a satin finish. Ooh, that sounds kind of sexy there. A smooth black patina, which is... Hand-buffed to a satin finish. Matt, we all know you like to be hand-buffed to a satin finish. R.S. Owens will stay on to service his existing trophies. I bet he will service those existing trophies and create other Academy Prizes like the plaques awarded its Science and Technology Award winners 
and yada yada and yada yada there matt comics question com or comics we can talk about comics if you want but comments questions or concerns in particular about the revamp of the oscar statuette no no other than i'm i just thought they were going to make it fat because you know americans are fat now or something they made barbie fat so i thought they were going to make oscar fat too (laughs) (laughs) the curvy the curvy statue that's right that's right all right uh this is the last this is kind of weird i don't usually end the news but um okay i guess i'm gonna end the news this time (laughs) so so here we go uh let's see here i've got a trio of stories all about deadpool uh don't worry folks we're gonna be covering deadpool next week but uh, so that we don't have an absurd backup of news yet again. I'm just going to go ahead and go through these right now. Uh, from TheVerge.com by Dante de Orazio. Uh, let's see here. Deadpool destroys President's Day weekend box office record with $152.2 million. The 17-plus rating didn't stop the raunchy superhero. You heard right. Um... Just for just so you know, it is the best opening weekend ever, ever for an R-rated film. Uh, title that was previously held apparently in Matrix Reloaded. I didn't even realize that was. Well, I guess that was R, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it earned ninety-one point seven million. Uh, you also had American Sniper, Hangover Part Two, and then of course Fifty Shades of Grey, um, and they all earned between eighty-five and ninety million on their first weekend. So, um, yes, apparently the Merc with the Mouth. It was where it was at over this past weekend. Uh, moving very quickly into because of that success uh, from the HollywoodReporter.com by way of Boris Kitt, uh, there is a Deadpool sequel already in the works. Yes, folks, more Merc with a mouth. Fox is betting that audiences will not get a load of Deadpool when uh, the movie opens this weekend, but will immediately want more, which is why the studio is already working on a sequel. And if you've seen the movie, you already know this. If you haven't seen the movie, well, another reason to go see it. Um, so, yeah, again... Briefly, the it's a pretty short article, but you can go uh, read the rest of it there from the Hollywood Reporter. And then, more most importantly, to take away from all of this from Vulture dot com by way of Jackson McHenry, James Gunn is worried Hollywood will learn the wrong lessons from Deadpool. And yes, uh, Deadpool coming off the massive record-breaking weekend, and the article says it's enough to make Hollywood scramble to make legions of R-rated imitators, like a series of increasingly inane in-jokes unspooling in a Reddit thread. And And to that, James Gunn, director of Guardians of the Galaxy, says, quote, Enough, end quote. Uh, Let's see here. Quote, after every movie smashes records, people here in Hollywood love to throw out the definitive reasons why the movie was a hit. Uh, I saw it happen with Guardians. It wasn't afraid to be fun or it was colorful and funny, etc., etc., etc. And next thing I know, I hear of a hundred film projects being set up like Guardians. And I start seeing dozens of trailers exactly like the Guardians trailer with a big pop song and a bunch of quips. Uh, 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 end quote there. Uh, and that's what he wrote in a gun wrote all of this in a Facebook post. Um, he goes on to say that Deadpool is original uh, because of the style 
with which Deadpool already existed. And the people who wrote the movie understood that and presented that in the screenplay. And the people who made the movie understood that and brought it to you the right way. So while this is good for R-rated movies and for you know, Deadpool in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean we need a bajillion imitators. This is where Gunn is coming from. Uh, and Jackson McHenry's article definitely reflects that. So you should totally read the whole thing. Um, but I agree. I agree with James Gunn that just because Deadpool did it and did it right, um, and yes, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, that doesn't mean we need 100 million fucking movies like Deadpool because they're not going to be handled the same way. Um, what do you think, Tim? Any questions, comments, concerns regarding the trio of Deadpool stories? I have a question for you, and that would be, what would you think of an R-rated Wolverine movie? Because I think that's what we're going to end up getting with the final Wolverine movie being rated R. Oh, I'd be down for that. Because Wolverine is has always been ultra gritty, and I also think that the vast majority of people who were watching X-Men 16 years ago have kind of grown up with it. So I think that you have enough of an already installed fan base that would automatically be old enough to go see the movie. So sure, why not? You know, now having seen Deadpool as well, I kind of hope, I kind of hope Wolverine and Deadpool have a buddy movie. Like, Hugh, Hugh goes off and he does his last Wolverine movie, but then he has to do one with Ryan Reynolds. That'd be great. I, I would love to watch it. That's awesome. <sighs> All right. Well, then, that definitely concludes the uh, news. We do not have a bonus segment this week. However, the segments return. The bonus segments return as of next week. Uh, we're having an extra special bonus segment next week, and that'll be our Oscar predictions. And that, that is why, folks, we've been watching so many movies. Because we're leading up to the big, grandiose predictions. <laughs> exactly. Now, unfortunately, though, Tim is going to have a little bit of a leg up on me due to the nature of limited release screenings for certain foreign films that are only available in the L.A. market and not in Houston. Um, so he's going to be able to review the last two of the films that we need to cover. And I, unfortunately, will not be able to. Um, the earliest I can see one of them is March 11th. And even though the other one is releasing, um, actually, I think it's even today, um, as we record on the 17th of February, um, it's not going to be available for me. So, you know, once again, it's cooler to live in LA than Houston, apparently, but whatever. Um, so, we're gonna have we're gonna have that, and then we're and Tim's gonna give those reviews. We'll do the movies first, and then we'll go into our Oscar predictions to wrap it all up. So there we go. Without further ado, I present to you the movies. <laughs> Right. So the movies for this week are Mustang, Son of Saul, Thebe, 
Youth and Hail Caesar. Uh, Embrace of the Serpent is the movie that we were thinking we were going to be able to get done for this week's episode, but unfortunately, no. So it has been pushed to next week. Uh, where would you like to start there, Tim? Thebe. Thebe. Yes. Thebe. Kind of like Seeb. But, yeah, anyway. Uh, actually, nothing like Seeb. Uh, it just kind of sounds like it. Uh, let's see here. 2014 Jordanian Arabic language film. Uh, focuses on a young Bedouin boy who has to survive on his own after some traumatic happenings happen out in the desert in 1916. Um, and let's, let's talk about this film here. This is probably one of the most interesting films. It's kind of, for me, I kind of felt like it was a mixture of cast away uh of life of pi and in a in a in a in a not ironic way my dinner with andre and the reason why i say the last one is because of the focus on two people in a struggle to it's just it's just the way the two people try to come to understand one another in a thing but then of course with life of pi i hope you understand what's going on there and then cast away um i thought that this was a very very compelling movie i mainly because as a student of this time period now um it's really fascinating to see a current take on something that on on the end of a literal era as the ottoman empire is truly coming to a close it'll be gone in like seven years um actually even maybe even less than that by this point and to see how there is this blend of youth and vibrance and wanting to know more of life and you contrast that with the tradition of the nomadic lifestyle that had been going on for centuries with the geopolitical aspects of what was happening in 1916 you know with world war one and everything um and and yet you're telling the story of this boy um I, it's truly, truly compelling. I, I that's the best way I can say it. Um, I, it's kind of interesting because the one thing that I thought would have been really, really easy to have gotten full marks for in this film would have been the cinematography. But I gotta be honest with you, I was not really impressed with that. Your the time period, the area, the desert, and everything. Um, you get that. I mean, all of that is there, but in you know, you don't get that Lawrence of Arabia feel. And it's not because it's trying to tell this kind of epic story, but instead could focus on the idea of loneliness and everything. And where, for example, in Castaway when uh tom hanks's character is lost out on the ocean or in same when life of pi you have just this vastness of sea right and you can get that same kind of thing especially as Thebe finds himself alone in a certain point of the film um and yet it just kind of seems like a desert 
you know and so the cinematography that can do so much with this source material just kind of seems to do an okay job and so that in and of itself is not so bad but then you really need to focus on the characters and while i thought the characters were interesting overall and i thought that this boy um let's see jasir Eid al Huaytat, uh who played Thebe. um I, personally i think he gives um uh, our young friend from room a run for his money uh but as critical as he was, I felt like the interplay wasn't there. So, uh, as well as it could have been. And thus, when the end of the movie takes place, I thought it wasn't as strong as it could have been. It's still moving and it's still compelling, but I just felt like it, it just didn't quite get to where it needed to be. This is still a really, really, really cool movie. I give this one 4.25, so please check it out. Once again, this is why I love the foreign film category um, of the Oscars. Because we in America generally don't give foreign films their due. And so um, this is just a really good example of why. You should always check out foreign films. Uh, 4.25. What do you got there, Tim? Phoebe is beautifully shot. It's well thought out. And it's top-notch storytelling. But the movie ultimately becomes frustrating as it nears the halfway mark. And I guess this is a minor spoiler if you don't want any uh, uh, particular plot elements spoiled. Uh, but... Like what Matt alluded to a little while ago in saying that the boy finds himself alone, that's where, to me, the movie kind of hits a wall, and it takes him a while for them to overcome that wall or scale that wall. What I mean by that is that the movie starts off and you are introduced to these characters, and the story is moving forward for the most part. It's not like your run-of-the-mill, slow-burning indie film in fact, once the characters go on their particular journey or start their particular journey, it feels like an epic. You know, it feels like they're they're experimenting with the grandiose epic feel to a much lesser extent as Lawrence of Arabia. It's shot beautifully. They go there. Some of these locales are absolutely beautiful. A number of them have not been used in any movies, shot for any movies, I guess. And there there are some great nuances in the filmmaking that I personally appreciated, and that is how I kind of correlated and found some of the same characteristics that one would find, or that I would have found, in all these other classic epics from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and I love that. But once the film hits the certain point when the boy is on his own, about midway, the movie hits a wall. And it takes it'll it takes the film a little little while to actually get its footing, and by the time it gets its footing back, it, one could argue it's a little too late in the game. You know, the other plot points have been brought up to where the movie didn't need that footing that it had earlier on in the movie. So that is why I give Thebe three point seven five out of five. It very well could have been three and a half, but it's beautifully shot. And it's a good story. And like what Matt said, the young boy in it is 
worth the view as well. So 3.75 out of 5. Delightful, sir. Uh, where do you want to go from here, man? How about Mustang? Okay, Mustang. Uh, let's see here. This is also a good movie. Uh, was not quite my winner of the week, as it were. Uh, let's see here. It's a 2015 internationally co-produced drama film. And um, it's it, it tells the story of a... I guess, uh, uh, it, well, yeah, it's like five sisters and how they are basically trying to move on with their life. Um, and, okay, I don't know if anybody out there is ever f- familiar with the, uh, is familiar with the film The Virgin Suicides, but it's... If the, uh, let's, let's pretend that Virgin Suicides was good. <laughs> let's do that. Let's pretend that the Virgin Suicides <laughs> was a good movie because I think it's a terrible movie. Um, and then we transpose it so that it's, um, so that it's, it, it's Turkish instead of Americana ish. And that's, that is heavily the influence and style and the way the story kind of works for Mustang. Now, the reason why I say that is because the struggle for me with this film was uh, it plays out in a very, what I think Americans would consider to be a very stereotypical way for how a lot of families are perceived in this part of the world with this particular religion and um, the conservative, ultra-conservative styles that can be wrought from this material. And it can be very quickly, and and all of those things can be very quickly uh, tied into the film to the point that you lose the spirit of the film, which is, is that it's these girls trying desperately to claw their way out and make their own lives. The thing is, is that while that is the heart and soul of the movie, and I think that the movie does do a good job of doing that, it is just so ridiculously heavy-handed in its trying to keep these poor women down, these poor young women down. And despite the fact that situations like this truly exist, which I, I want to make sure and make clear that, of course, these things do exist, um, it just seemed like... Uh, it, it just seemed like it, it, it was never going to be able to get out from under the weight of itself. I think the characters are interesting. Um, I believe that the young girl who plays Lale, 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 um, I can't pronounce, I can't remember how they pronounce her name, um, was definitely very good. And this, the family situation that is there, I think is, is faithfully represented, but, um, just the material, I think, is too heavy. And, and like I said, it struggles to come out from under the weight of what it's presenting to actually get to the heart and soul of the film. That being said, 
still worth watching. I actually give this one 3.75 out of 5, so be sure to check it out if you can. What do you got there, Tim? <laughs> this is 4.25 out of 5 for me. Shit, rules... why do we keep switching back and forth? What is this crap? <laughs> uh, I thought it was an excellent portrait or window into womanhood in modern society. And, you know, personally, I mean, I guess in some way I can understand how you would feel that it felt like, how that you would feel that the movie is heavy-handed. But I really didn't feel like the movie was heavy-handed because of the subject matter and the vastly different culture compared to uh, our culture and my lifestyle and whatnot. Because these women, these poor girls, you know, arranged marriages are happening. They're being locked up. In or kept under lock and key by their grandmother and evil uncle. It's amazing. They're not going to, they're basically taken out of school. They were kept shrouded away from their friends and, and, and lovers, I suppose. And it's a, it's a great, it's a very interesting look into that particular, particular life. And because I am not one who can, who has had experience with this and have, I haven't witnessed this firsthand at all, but I'd imagine this movie does a damn good job at trying to capture at least those feelings of any woman who is put in this particular situation as these girls in this film are depicting. With that, I think it's definitely an achievement in its own right. It's just fascinating. It's different because this movie takes place now yet all this stuff is still going on. And though society, though pop culture, though Americanization, I guess, has spread across the pond and further, it doesn't necessarily affect everybody. Especially in these hardcore religious Turkish homes. These people are set in their ways with their customs. And it left me thinking about the movie once it was over. And... There's not really much more I can say about it, uh, yet I still give it 4.25 out of 5. I did have a problem. There was some kind of tonal issues I thought the movie had. At some points, it, w- it felt a little too light and fluffy, and at other times, it felt like, shit, I mean, this is very depressing. It could because it could be because of the filmmaker, the director, Denise Gamzee Yurguven. I apologize. I know I definitely butchered her name. But it could be because this was one of her very first films. I don't know, but it the movie is still good. And I am very much looking forward to her follow-up. So I'm really happy to say that we have another female director, uh, another incredibly talented female director on hand. And so 4.25 out of 5 for Mustang. Cool. All right. Uh, so are we going, what kind of, what are we looking for here? We're looking for. <laughs> let's, let's wrap up the foreign flicks with Son of Sal or Saul. Saul. Well, I mean, youth is technically a foreign film. Okay. Well, we can do youth. But I mean, it's not a nominated foreign film, but it's technically a foreign film. <laughs> uh, no, that's fine though. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So the official nominees here will wrap up with Son of Saul, uh, which actually is my winner of the week. I, I know I started using this a couple weeks ago, but whatever. This, you know, so just where we're at. 
2015 Hungarian drama film. It's directed by Laszlo Nemes or Nemes, and um, it is set in the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II, and basically just goes over the day, a day and a half, um, a day and a half in the life of Saul Auslander, and this is a Hungarian member of the Sonderkommando. Now, these were basically work units made up of German Nazi death camp prisoners. And they were the Jews who were forced on threat of their own deaths, uh, basically to aid with the disposal of gas chamber victims. So they would have to empty the gas chambers. They would bury these people. They would dig the mass graves. Uh, a lot of them actually learned demolition uh, because of that, they were actually able to learn how to use explosives and stuff because they didn't just dig those graves. A lot of times they would blow holes in the ground and stuff like that. So these people actually would become trained and actually somewhat useful. Um, and of course, this kept them alive longer. And because of that, that it, it's interesting how it doesn't quite touch on that in the film, but it does because of the situations that are um, our poor Saul finds himself in are a direct result of being able to have access to things and being able to do things he wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, so the film is in October of 1944 and he is basically doing his job when he thinks he comes across his son and, and, and literally from the point of that happening, he, it's kind of like everything in his life unravels and everything that even the social, um, I guess, construct that they have within this, because they still have almost like a caste system within the prison. Um, and everything that they experience is only in the manner of which they wish to experience it and whether or not it fits with their view of either what they have going on or what they are trying to do either individually or as their groups or regiments or segments within their Jewish population as the prisoners or as part of the Sonderkommando or what have you. Um. And there's a particular phrase that really makes a lot of sense that I know Tim's going to cover, so I'm not going to use it because <laughs> I don't want to take it away from him. Um, but it's it's so, so apt, and it really does a great job of also not just explaining the way that these people deal with one another, but also gives a wonderful insight into the cinematography of the film. Now, the only real problem that I have with this film is that by... The two-thirds point of the movie, I I really think that they were trying too hard to put in too many different threads to add to the drama and twist of the things that were going on. And I think it sacrificed, and it did that um, to the point that it sacrificed the rest of the integrity of the story. Now, not in any way does that mean that it ended poorly, but I think that it led to what could be deemed as a confused, a slightly confusing ending, um, or something that while meant to be thought provoking could be seen as, um, somewhat of a letdown. 
I didn't take it that way. I thought the ending was really, really good. Um, but it just starts, it's just in an effort to kind of ratchet things up, it ends up being somewhat convoluted. So I end up giving this one 4.5 out of 5. Holy crap, this shit's amazing. Um, what a powerful story. What a powerful drama. Um, and it really, really, really gives you a whole new insight into what these people went through and what it was like there. So please check it out if you can. 4.5 out of 5, Son of Saul. What do you got there, Tim? Son of Saul is a very grim film, but it's a very grim film in a way that it does it. It manages to not exploit the subject matter. And this was done, I think, by way of how they shot the movie. And this is one of the reasons why I absolutely loved this movie, though I do not think the movie is perfect. They shot the film, uh, they shot the movie on 35 millimeter film. They used a 40 millimeter lens and the Academy aspect ratio of 1.375 to 1. And the effect of using that particular uh, lens as well as the 1.375 to 1 aspect ratio is that it gives you a shallow focus and what and a I guess what it says here a portrait like narrow field of vision and the academy aspect ratio of 1.375 to 1 is an aspect ratio I'm reading from Wikipedia here just so you know more about it is an aspect ratio of a frame of 35 millimeter film when used with four perf pull down it was standardized by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences as the standard film aspect ratio in 1932, although similar size ratios were used as early as 1928. And for you youngins out there, you millennials out there who don't know what standard aspect ratio is, it's when you're watching the picture and the black bars are not at the top or the bottom, but on the sides, the left and the right hand side of the screen. And so with that shallow depth of feel, and the shallow focus, it, with with the movie being portrait-like, it's it's all about the framing. And what they framed, what they focused on for most of the movie is the man, is Saul. And as what Matt mentioned, the movie is about him looking for a rabbi to bless his son who, who who's dead. And so you're basically... It's weird. It's like a first-person point-of-view movie, but it's not first-person point-of-view. It's like you're playing a video game, but you're only looking at the guy's back, the head, and over his shoulders. And that is how, earlier, whenever I first started off, that's why when I said that, that the movie is very grim, but it doesn't exploit the subject matter, it's because you know all of this horrible stuff is going on. You know all these people are dead, all these... Uh, I mean, there are, there are naked victims all over the place. In fact, there is a scene when they're being burnt, and there's a big tra- there's a big pile of bodies, and they're, they're they're being burned to ash. And you know all that's going on. You hear it, and you can barely see it over his shoulder, but you can't make out what exactly is going on. You cannot see the details of it until really. Until the next shot where you see him scooping up the ash with with shovels, you know. But you don't really see all the gore. I mean, yeah, you see some of the bodies and all that stuff. But that is not what the movie is about. This is the backdrop of this story that is taking place. 
And it's a very effective way of shooting the movie, and, and, I, and I love it. And it's something that I think a lot of directors and filmmakers don't have the balls to do, because I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, hey, you know, this is a movie, and we, the audience needs to see all this stuff. No, the audience doesn't need to see all this stuff, because we're seeing... We are we have grown or we are currently growing attached to this character who is experiencing all this firsthand. And we are watching him experience all of this firsthand. And that, to me, is even more grim, even more depressing, even more it just all around sad and, and, and especially real. Because none of us really have anything to pull from when we see it. But we have a lot to pull from when we see somebody else experiencing it and living through it. And that is why I think that, that and this is where I think this movie succeeds or better yet, excels. Um, and the word that Matt was willing to use is uh, earlier was tunnel vision when describing how they shot this movie. And the reason why I thought tunnel vision was a good way of describing this movie is because once the movie is finished, you're kind of worn out. And a lot of it is because I think you, the audience member, are, you know, you're experiencing this tunnel vision. Because you have to keep in mind that whenever these workers are working for the bad guy and they're doing all this atrocious stuff, you, you know, you, I mean, you better bet your ass they're experiencing tunnel vision. Their lack of sleep, the lack of food, hard work, brutal work, disgusting work. They're just only going to focus on the work they have to do. They can't allow the outside get to them or be affected by the outside. So, therefore, they develop tunnel vision. And you experience that when you watch the movie. It's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I love how they shot it. It's very inventive. And it is definitely something that myself and I guarantee you have never experienced before. And like I said, the movie does wear you out at the end. So I, I would just say... Be prepared, but don't like don't go and look watch the trailer. If you're interested in the movie, go and see it. I highly recommend seeing it at a movie theater if you're able to. Uh, but if you can't, rent it whenever you're able to rent it and do enjoy it. Uh, for it's not necessarily for the subject matter, but for the uh, technical aspect of it is I mean it's just fascinating, and I mean obviously the history is fascinating as well. So. Uh, Son of Saul, I give this one 4.5 out of 5 as well. Hey, look at that. <laughs> we came in line. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. So we have Youth, uh, which is the last Oscar-nominated film that we have this week, or we can do that one last and instead do Hail Caesar first. Which one would you like to do, sir? How about we save the disappointment for last? Okay, sounds like a plan. In that case, we go to Youth. Uh, it's a 2015 Italian uh, dramedy. It is written and directed by Paolo Sorrentino. This is the director's uh, second English language film, actually, and it stars Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel as best friends who reflect on their lives while holidaying in the Swiss Alps. Uh, let's see here. So we have a rather quirky couple of uh, best friends and they're staying at a luxury resort um, 
let's see, Michael Caine plays Fred Ballinger. He's a composer. And then Harvey Keitel plays Mick Boyle, who is a filmmaker. They have, um, uh, they both have kind of their reasons for being kind of where they are in life. But at the same time, they also want to enjoy what bit of life they have left. And yet certain aspects of their lives keep popping up that prevent them from doing so. Um, interspersed through these, through this, uh, rather interesting story are, uh, quite a few surreal sequences. Um, you get a fake, you get a fake music videos, you get Hitler impersonations, um, uh, cowbells, um, <laughs> uh, and, and yet, um, the story that it's trying to tell, uh, still does manage to shine through. I think really the, um, You have a lot of people in this film other than just Michael Cannon and Harvey Keitel, obviously. You got Rachel Weiss, Paul Dano, always a favorite of ours, I know, uh, Jane Fonda, among other people. I just, uh, Paul Dano actually plays a character who is trying to make more of his life and more of his professional career than already, than he already has. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't think he did a poor job, but it just seems like, with where he was trying to interact with the film, that particular character, I don't know, I just wasn't, I uh, wasn't buying in. And I think that that's more the writing of the film, uh, more than anything else, because the acting is, is very, very good. And I definitely think it's that the direct, the direction was proper as well, but the director was also the writer. So I think that makes that portion of it easier but i don't know the writing in this one just felt really clunky to me especially when you're trying to blend comedy and drama you're putting in the like i said those surrealistic kind of sequences you've got these you've got a core of people who relate and understand but at the same time their character dynamics working with the rest of the cast um at the character level, not on the person interpersonal level or anything like that, um, just don't seem to they don't seem to jive very well. It's almost like the the puzzle pieces are being forced to, to fit together. The with the result being that you can still tell what the picture is, but maybe there's one piece too many. At the end of the day, on this one, I do give it three stars. I can say I liked it, but this one really just, um, I think it just really suffers from a lackluster story that wasn't written as well as it could be, salvaged by good directing and really good acting. So there there you go. Three stars. What do you got, Tim? So, Matt, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we actually reviewed Sorrento's, or uh, yeah, Sorrentino's, filmed The Great Beauty a couple years ago, which was also nominated for Best Foreign Film, about the rich, older Greek guy who... Holy crap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I remember that. Goodness gracious. Yeah, you gave it four. I gave it 4.5. And I remember my review for it. I was comparing the film to uh, 
Fellini's films. You know, Fellini is the great Italian director who did Eight and a Half, Armacord, uh, I mean, so many classic films. And Fellini is known, or was known, as being a surreal filmmaker, or for the most part, a surreal filmmaker. I don't know if uh, a surrealism is really the... Uh, you know the right label to give him or not, but you can you can tell that Sorrentino was trying to achieve Fellini's surrealism level with the great beauty, and for the most part, he does achieve it. And I, I'm sure, I mean, I mean, it, it felt like you're watching a Fellini film. With youth, it seemed like. Sorrento was trying to trying to find his own footing in being a filmmaker, uh, maybe not taking as many cues from Fellini, uh, trying to make his own print, or, you know, make his own handprint uh, on 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 films. Uh, I don't know, but the movie the movie didn't jive. The movie didn't work as well as The Great uh, Beauty. I mean, it's still surreal, but it's not as much, it's not as surreal as Great Beauty. Uh, I did, however, love the message that the movie left me with as the lights came up, as you would say. As the credits were finished rolling, I was still thinking about the movie. The, I mean, there are absolutely beautiful moments that make the film worthwhile. Yes, there are ridiculous moments. There are, you know, there, there are these surreal moments, but when they're done right, they're done incredibly well. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I would love to talk about right now, but I don't want to spoil anything for those of you who wish to check youth out. Um, it's, it's a beautiful film and I think it's worth watching. It's on Hulu plus, so you can watch it on Hulu plus, uh, it's, I mean, it's Michael Caine. It's always fun to see Michael Caine doing real, uh, you know, doing straight up drama. And of course, his cheekiness does come out as well. And the, I, I think this is kind of a hark back to his uh, portrayal of Scrooge in The Muppet Christmas Carol, because I don't think I've ever seen, I haven't seen him, not at the top of my head at least, I don't think I've seen him in a more uh, stern or, uh, what's what's a good way to describe his character uh foolish stubborn i guess i haven't seen him play a good stubborn character in a while so this was a nice treat uh but as you know on the downside the movie does feel choppy and it felt like sarantino or sorrentino it, it felt like he didn't really know which direction he wanted to take the movie in like what which path to take because there are definitely some quirky moments to it that really don't work and i i, I mean i would guess it was probably his you know that it would be up to him to make sure they did work so yeah, I, I don't know. But yeah, 3.75 out of 5 for me. I do recommend it if you're into movies like this. So, there you go. Very good. All right. Well, then that leaves us with Hail Caesar. Uh, the 2016 American comedy film written, produced, edited, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, film stars Josh Brolin, George Clooney, Alden Ein. Heinrich, Ralph Fiennes, Jonah Hill, Scarlett Johansson, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, and Channing Tatum. Um, 
It's a fictional story, however. It follows the real-life fixer, uh, Eddie Mannix, who was working in the Hollywood film industry in the 1950s. And basically, he's trying to solve a makeshift kidnapping. And yet, that's really not what... Because it seems that the movie is trying to be about this kidnapping, but it's really, really not... It's about him. It is about Josh Brolin's character of Eddie Mannix. Um, and we also have this very weird, um, kind of, I guess, narration or narrator, I guess, which is played by Michael Gamden. Um, and he is utilized, the narrator is utilized in a very, very odd way. And instead of letting the narrator bring you into the story and then flesh out the characters within the story, because that's how they set it up with the narrator and his role, they instead stop doing that and bring in very disparate characters who very often have nothing to do with the main subplot, which is this kidnapping thing, uh, and instead have to focus on what Mannix has to do in terms of his job on a day-to-day basis, which is really what the movie is about. And they take these people and then use golden age of Hollywood settings to introduce these characters. And while that in and of itself seems to be um, fascinating and somewhat full of folly, which is, you know, kind of a... um, a, a, a casual remark on the time period that was and how we romanticize it. It basically instead just kind of leaves you going, what, wait, what, what's happening? What, why am I watching underwater, you know, aquabatics? Wait, hang on. What does the singing cowboy have to do with it? Wait, hold on. Why am I watching a musical number? And you don't get to fully appreciate what it is they're trying to convey and be able to have that fit. And then because the character parts that these, that these, uh, people play and their focus has oftentimes little to do with the major subplot of the kidnapping and often nothing to do with the subplot of the kidnapping you don't understand why they're there it's almost like it's red herrings that all they do is distract from the main story which is again eddie mannix and yet the whole thing is set up to be about this kidnapping um but even beyond that it then tries to make relevant 
commentary on the themes and the crisis that was happening at the end of the golden age of Hollywood uh, with the rise of uh, the communist threat and everything. Things that were much better dealt with in Trumbo than here. And while I certainly like the whimsy and certainly as someone who loves golden age of Hollywood films and appreciates them, this just didn't do it. It was just so completely all over the place um, that you just, it's not even vignettes. It's just poorly timed story elements that detract from a main subplot, which doesn't do justice to the actual plot of the movie. Um, that being said, there's still some really cool performances in there, and there, in particular, Alden Einrich uh, and Ralph Fiennes have an exchange in this film that is absolutely hilarious, and for me, probably about the high point of the entire flick. Um, but there is still a manner of charm that the movie has. And I especially like, uh, how, um, they incorporate people like Tilda Swinton, who plays twins, Thora and Thessaly, who are actually kind of a playoff of Dear Abby and, oh, the other advice columnist who were real life twins who also ended up having competing columns. So there are things to enjoy about the film, but there are things to enjoy individually and nothing that really brings the film together as a whole. I was really, really disappointed with this film, and I end up giving it 2.25, and that's just for its individual elements. Really, really disappointed with Hail Caesar. What do you got there, Tim? Well, you're not going to have any confrontation from me on (laughs) (laughs) Hail Caesar. Uh, this movie has no focus. What exactly is this movie about? Yes, by the end of it, you do realize that it is about Mannix, but it you you really have you just really don't know. It's 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 rather strange. Uh, yes, it's abs- It's uh, yes, the movie is aesthetically pleasing, and it does provide great nostalgia. But there is absolutely no substance to uh, uh, probably about 70% of the movie. There is no substance. The musical number and the water number, though it's really cool and fun to watch, were only necessary for these sub-characters, and they added nothing to the main story. And, it, I mean, there, were, there was just a lot of stuff like that where I just kept asking myself... Who cares? Who cares about these characters? Why does... And, like, I kept wondering, like, so why did Jonah Hill get a starring, like, a a main credit on the poster for the movie when he says three words in the movie? And he's in the movie for two and a half minutes, I think? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe, Maybe it was all part of the gag that I... Don't understand. I I don't know. I don't know. The movie is beautifully shot. Uh, it is shot by Roger Deakins, who has who who actually had shot every other Coen brother movie. And the costumes are beautiful. The scenery, the sets are beautiful. And 
for what the story is, it's an interesting story. I just wish they did more to it. I just thought it had more substance. I wish it had more focus. The movie is just more of a mess than it is anything else. And unfortunately, Hail Caesar, in my opinion, is one of the weaker additions to the Coen Brother library of films. So I give it 2.75 out of 5. 2.75 mainly for the work of Roger Deakins. I thoroughly enjoyed Channing Tatum's dance number. Uh, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I think the Channing Tatum dance number was the best executed scene when it came to trying to uh, when it when it came to mimicking old Hollywood and trying to re. Uh, actually, I should say it was the best recreation of old Hollywood. I, I should say was that dance number because uh, I felt even Scarlett Johansson's uh, her swim act, the water act. It just, I mean, there wasn't really a whole lot to it. It made for great pictures, uh, you know, and great freeze frames, but it that even didn't have as much substance. But I can go on and on about Hell Caesar, so I will just end with 2.75 out of 5. Oh yeah, and it's not particularly all that funny either. Alright, well there you have it, folks. A combined SLS cast rating of 2.5. <laughs> Um, so yes, disappointing there. All right. Well, that closes out the movies and brings us to next week's movies, which will be A War and Embrace of the Serpent, which are the last two Oscar nominated movies that we'll be covering. Uh, and again, these are going to be Tim's take only because they're not going to be available for me to watch. Uh, our shared movie reviews are going to be Deadpool and Zoolander 2. Those are the movies for next week. And with nothing else to do, I think it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right. Well, the music you've been listening to for our segment intros and other intros and outros, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can even send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. Don't forget, you can always follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nit. Twit one two three four five. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and/or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Harvey Keitel, I get to say this: the way I see things, the way I see life, I see it as a struggle, and there's a great deal of reward I have gained coming to that understanding that existence is a struggle. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.